Have you ever played a massively multiplayer online game? My first experience with these types of games was with text-based role-playing games called MUDs back in the early 90s. Well, things have come a long way since then. Games such as EVE Online have hundreds of thousands of players exploring, trading, and battling within a universe of over 7,000 star systems. Gameplay in EVE Online consists of beautiful 3D space flight within a dynamic universe with many real-world players. You may have played EVE Online as it's one of the first major MMOs released back in 2003. But did you know that Python is at the core of the game, playing a critical role in the backend infrastructure as well as a major role in the client-side game itself? On this episode, you'll meet Christian Sigebergsen from CCP Games to dig into Python at EVE Online. This is Talk Python to Me, episode number 52, recorded March 16th, 2016. I'm a developer in many senses of the word, because I make these applications, but I also use these verbs to make this music. I construct it line by line, just like when I'm coding another software design. In both cases, it's about design patterns. Anyone can get the job done. It's the execution that matters. I have many interests. Sometimes Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by Hired and SnapCI. Thank them for supporting the show on Twitter via at Hired underscore HQ and at Snap underscore CI. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We're going to have a really cool conversation about games and massive scale of just online applications in general, right? Yep. I'm sure that we will. You guys are doing amazing stuff. Before we dig into that, though, what's your story? How'd you get into programming Python? I came kind of roundabout way into game programming. I actually applied for a position at CSP as a game designer. And I started here as a game designer, worked here for two years, but I've always kind of been interested in programming. So I started poking around, fixing things. And then after that, it was kind of no turning back because programmers are always in such a short demand that was so much demand that is that that I just kind of pulled all of my time over into programming and then I kind of just kind of worked my way into being the my current position which is technical director of EVE Online wow and I did that by just attacking every problem that I saw and never giving up on them that's really cool and you guys do mostly python there is that correct yeah majority of the the programmers on in EVE uh, work in python we do have some stuff written in C++ as well as most of our DP in SQL. But I'd say like uh, at least 75, 80, 80% of our, our programmers spend like vast majority of the time in Python. Okay, excellent. And how do you get into that originally? Did, is that something you learned when you first started there? Or did you know that before you started? No, I, I'd known about CCP. I knew they were developing in Python. and But the only thing I knew about Python was that uh, white space matters, which I thought was <laughs> Uh, ridiculous at first, but now I'm thinking it's it's one of its greatest features because you're going to have the white space that way anyway, so you might as well have it mean something. It also kind of forces you to be consistent on it. So. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Like anytime you look at professional code, it's always structured in a way that resembles the way that Python is structured. You know, if you look at C++ or C Sharp or even JavaScript, when it's well written, the white space is in a format such that it could matter, but it doesn't, right? And so I had exactly the same feeling when I learned Python the first time. I'm like, 
this four space thing, this is insane to me. Like, where are the curly braces and the semicolons? What is going on? And then I worked in Python for a while and I went back. I had been coming from C Sharp and I went back to C Sharp and I thought, wait a minute, why am I typing all this crap? This is way less fun to type than I remember. And it's because I was spoiled by the structure of Python, which really surprises me. Yeah, and you can kind of see it from the code when you read like Java code or C Sharp code and stuff like that. When you have a lot of indentation, you also have a lot of like white space beneath it where you have closing all of those brackets, all of those curly brackets. And it's also weird because if you see somebody write Java code, for example, and it, it, it has an if statement and then two indented lines but no curly brackets, I can guarantee you that programmer met both of those clauses to be within the uh, if clause. Absolutely. There was some bug, I think it was in OS ten about a year and a half ago, a really bad like SSL right, I, man in the middle bug. And it was exactly that. It was like there was an if statement and they didn't have the curly braces, but it was indented. So people thought it was in one case, but it was actually in a different one, right? Yeah, I thought this exact thing and I thought this would never have happened in Python. <laughs> How interesting. We'd have different problems, surely, but... Yeah, we, we might have other problems, but the indentation problem, not so much. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I kind of always like that about the, the Python philosophy is that what you see is kind of what you, I think the code, the whole idea is that the code is readable and what you see on the screen is what actually happened, not some like, aha, you forgot the curly brackets. I, I say it a lot on the show, like you hear about things like JavaScript gotchas and, you know, like languages like C, the mistakes that people make when they're new to the language that are really bad and not obvious. And you just don't hear about that concept in Python. Like people make mistakes, but they like don't work or something, right? The only thing I can think of, and, and I love showing people that are new to Python this, is the uh, mutable keyword argument. I love that bit. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about EVE Online. EVE Online is a massive multiplayer online game that has to do with sort of like space exploration, colonization, uh, like a science fiction space future, right? Right, yeah. It's a, it's a massively multiplayer online game. We focus a lot here on the kind of the player interaction. We care a lot about how people interact with each other. So we, And we don't try to interfere that much about it. But in the end, it, it's a game where you fly a spaceship, you gather resources, you... You can shoot other people, you can shoot non-player controlled ships, NPCs. The biggest selling feature is the whole dynamic market. We have a, like a very realistic market. Yeah, there's kind of like an economy yeah. in the game that is live and, and not programmed, but is like organic in a sense, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it and mimics the the real world economies really. And you can you can see the same behavior there. And we actually had like a, a professor in economics working just analyzing the data we still analyze a lot of the data like the market activity just to know the health of the game and what's happening okay that's very cool do you have like machine learning type stuff going on in the background or is it more procedural and you understand it then you tweak the algorithm we had so for stuff that npcs like the just we sold on the market we had something where we controlled the supply we just created the item and, and sold them so-called like npc goods and what we did there is that we had something where you bought off the supply, we added a new supply, but at a higher price. 
and it, it bought a lot of the supplies, we, we reduced the price. So it, it kind of balanced itself out, which created kind of like trade trust. But that's kind of not the most interesting thing about the market. The, the, the most interesting thing about the market is the, the player versus player trading, where players sell items to other players. We don't need any machine learning. We don't need any fancy mechanics. The whole dynamic part of it is something that the players provide themselves just by speculating on the market and stuff like that. Yeah, very interesting. Like you just have a bunch of people interacting and that is like the artificial yeah. intelligence, although that, not artificial really. That is what creates all the all the kind of variance and dynamics and, and, and the interesting conversations. Like uh, just this other day, somebody showed a fake screenshot of an item a very rare item from our test server saying that they were now they were going to be dropped in the next release, which plummeted the price on that thing. So just by the market speculation that we might be doing something influenced the price on that item. Wow. Did that person go and buy a bunch of them all of a sudden? I assume so, yes. <laughs> but they, people do that a lot and they try to buy all the resources of a, of a certain type just to create a shortage of them. And, and we have amazingly clever group of players that do that players that have like a economist boards and and they have it departments and, and all sort of stuff have you had instances where people are selling items in the game but in real life for real money it's a constant problem really we don't support it obviously it's very tricky to stop but we work we try to do it as much as we can, and we've had a lot of success in it as well, but people always try to sell it. Sure. I guess that would mess up your algorithm, right? Because that's basically extraordinarily high-value transaction happening invisible to your economy in a sense, right? Like a black market to some degree, I guess. Yeah, yeah, but that's not the only reason. It, it's also we, we don't like this kind of it, – it's not secure for our players either. We also don't want you to be able to kind of buy a hat in the game. It kind of skews the whole thing. This is the philosophy of a game that was made before the last five years of in-app purchases in iOS and these types of games, right? That has such a different philosophy. Yeah, the people that are make are the most successful in it. They just make a game that is fun and then they find a way to monetize that without it being... Yeah, And then, of course, there are the other games where you just literally have to pay dollars and then you win. Yeah, that is not the same type of game as the no. as Eve and the, these other ones, right? This, I don't know, it's impure in some way. So let's talk a little bit more about the gameplay, and then we can get into the technical bits. So there's this sort of economy and this exchange of goods, and there's a lot of, like, you had like 7,000 star systems or something. You travel around, you can harvest things. So what other games is it like? Like, does it relate to, like, uh, Warcraft, Starcraft? Or other games, like, can you give some analogies so people who maybe haven't seen it are kind of aware? It's uh, like a massive multiplayer online, so obviously you're going to draw some comparison with uh, games like World of Warcraft and, and Lord of the Rings Online and, and those sort of games. Those are all kind of avatar-based games. We like to think of them as more of a kind of a theme park kind of game where where you go into the game and, and you have a bunch of rides where Eve is more of a, a sandbox kind of game. You can imagine you go to a sandbox and you have a shovel and, and a bucket and you're just going to have to make some fun out of it. Both genres are a lot of fun, but kind of maybe catered to different needs and, and possibly just at different times. Yeah, it seems to me like Eve is a game that really appeals to people that are like there for the long term. Like you're going to build something up over time and sort of grow it and so on. Yeah, and we do have very 
loyal subscribers. They've been with us. Some have been with us for years. And even some people that have since then quit playing EVE still show up at the EVE FanFest, the annual kind of gathering here in Iceland that we have just because they're part of the community and like staying part of the community. That's really cool that people are like so attached to the community there, right? I mean, how many players do you guys have? Give us some stats if you can. The peak is, I think, around thirty or 40,000 now. Wow. We were uh, in the stats of like uh, three, 400,000 users, I think, last I know. Okay. When you say massively multiplayer, that's pretty massive. Yeah, it is. I mean... There are bigger games there. I think at the time we we ranked somewhere between a small multiplayer, massive multiplayer, and a, and a large one. Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's talk about Python. Where does Python fit in the story of Eve? When they started developing Eve, they always wanted like a scripting language to go along with with something a bit lower level like C plus plus. And I think they they just it was obvious at the time to C plus plus. But that was like back in in ninety seven or something. It's pre two thousand. There weren't a whole lot of options. They were very. They were looking at JavaScript, but they eventually found out about Python and and started looking into stackless Python. And they really liked the idea of the whole micro threads they had in, in stackless. Yeah, and when you got started, this was like probably Python two, maybe maybe before that, right? I think I think it was Python one point six. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I think Python two was the year two thousand. Is that right? Yeah, I think it is. So when you actually look at a lot of the decisions that were made in at CCP with Python, you kind of have to color them in that light. You have to you have to look at the code and see, okay, so when was this written and what was available at the time? It's, it's, uh, it's, right, the trade-offs you made have to consider like, well, yeah. should we use VB or this? I mean, like these are the other technologies that are around at the time, right? Like JavaScript, Yeah, there was no concept of this Node.js thing. It was kind of a toy, right? So Python is a really good choice, I think. Yeah, but it was also, I think, a, a pretty daring choice because Python was pretty new at the time. It wasn't really that stable, I would say. And it didn't have a, like all the features that I think they would have needed it didn't have as good ides and 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 stuff like that i think it was daring but then again there wasn't like a whole lot of other options not for doing like a a lot of work in a scripting right there are actually quite a few python implementations these days and the show i just had uh last week was with brett cannon from microsoft talking about pigeon and we talked about things like pypy and Python and Pigeon and all these different choices for you know, alternate implementations. And one I don't think we really spoke about was Stackless, but Stackless was one of the few alternative options you had back in that time frame, right? Yeah, yeah. There wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of other implementations, I think. Then there was just the vanilla Python and Stackless, maybe a few others, but yeah. Yeah, not many. Like Things like Jython and Iron Python are like circa 2006, 2008, and then onward, right? So yeah. Why don't you tell everyone what Stackless Python is? Like, what is it? What's the advantage of it? Why did you guys choose this over just CPython 1.9 or whatever it was? The biggest advantage of, of Stackless Python that people saw here was the kind of the existence of micro threads. Just very lightweight worker threads that you can, you can start up and they could do one thing. The idea being that you could, the code would be a lot easier to read, basically. If you could just start up like this one task and it, it just does this one thing. Yeah, well, if you're dealing with 40,000 concurrent connections, yeah, a single-threaded, you know, sort of maybe forked off the 10 or 20 process type of 
system may well not scale the way you need it, right? So something like this is really helpful, yeah? Yeah, that was the biggest reason for choosing this over, over vanilla Python, I believe. Are you guys still using it? Yeah, we still use Stackless. We kind of wish that uh, the rest of the world would have followed us into Stackless, but sadly that didn't happen. And now we have some alternatives in, in Python. So right. we still are kind of tied to Stackless Python in terms of code. Yeah, it would probably take a pretty major rewrite, yeah? I'm not really sure how major it would be, but it would be pretty substantial by the look of it. Right. So maybe let's talk a little bit about the architecture infrastructure type of bits. Could you maybe talk about like the different systems and stuff that's going on in the back end? I'm assuming that the front end, the thing that runs on my OS ten machine or Windows that is the graphics in the actual client side game. It's mostly C plus plus. Is that a fair assumption? Right. Most of the most of the highest high performing stuff is is C plus plus. Like the graphics engine is C plus plus. The physics engine is C plus plus. The DB layer is is C plus plus. Then we kind of have a, a nebulous layer that handles like files and and various things, clocks and stuff like that called Blue, which is like our own invention. We have various third-party libraries written in C++ as well. Yeah, so most of that is done in C++. Most of the stuff that we, for someone saw that would be a problem. We also have like a, a minor things. There's, uh, there's a feature called planetary interaction where we kind of have a, a layer over the planets that shows like resource distributions, which is implemented in C++ because we thought it would be very performance with and which is uh, would have had a performance problem I think in Python but we wrote that in C++ so we have some options if we want really something to perform really really fast we can write in C++ sure and do you have anything on the client side that's Python or is that all back and stuff yeah 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 the the most of the UI implementation is in Python like it, it bots on to like C++ some rendering but for the most part UI programmers write stuff in Python oh that's really interesting This episode is brought to you by Hired. Hired is a two-sided curated marketplace that connects the world's knowledge workers to the best opportunities. Each offer you receive has salary and equity presented right up front, and you can view the offers to accept or reject them before you even talk to the company. Typically, candidates receive five or more offers within the first week, and there are no obligations, ever. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? Well, did I mention the signing bonus? Everyone who accepts a job from Hired gets a $1,000 signing bonus. And as TalkPython listeners, it gets way sweeter. Use the link Hired.com slash TalkPython to me, and Hired will double the signing bonus to $2,000. Opportunities knocking. Visit Hired.com slash TalkPython to me and answer the call. When I thought about how you guys were using Python, I, of course, thought, all right, the back end is probably a lot of Python and things like that. But like I said, the front end, mostly C++. Can you elaborate on that? Like, are they using a custom sort of plug into your own rendering engine or are they using some kind of widget windowing system or maybe talk about it a bit? This is all kind of custom made here at C++. So the the lower level objects, like the the drawing of the stuff is, is in C++. And then we can actually just, and I think at least it used to be the case that you would just kind of inherit from them. The Python object could inherit from the C object and you would, uh, I can't remember what we were using for it, whether it was boost or... Sure. That sounds really, really cool. 
how about on the server side? Like, what type of interaction does the game from the client side actually have with the server? And what does a request sort of look like from sort of systems and infrastructure and so on? Right. We have our own kind of a, a networking layer, which we call Matsunet. And, and it kind of handles the server and client communication, as well as communication between nodes on the cluster both from the proxies to the soul nodes, as we call them, which are really just the worker nodes where everything happens. The proxies sit out in front and receive requests from the client, as well as, as the communication between nodes as well. This is all done in Python, actually. Okay, yeah. No, no, it was rewritten some time ago, uh, C++, but with a, with a Python layer on top, so you can know this. Right, right. Very cool. And is this in your own set of data centers, or are you hosted in like some kind of cloud place? Like... AWS or something? No, no. We, it's in our own data center, and we actually moved data centers recently. There's a big blog on that on, on the website. It might be interesting for tech people to read that. It was actually quite an operation. We, we, we had to both move data centers, and we had to buy whole new hardware in it. And we were just moving between, like, London. So. And then I heard you say you were using SQL Server somewhere around there is that right yeah that's that's correct okay cool are you hosted on windows or on linux we're hosted on windows we're probably one of the rare instances where we actually use python and windows i guess yeah yeah very cool okay the world has changed since 1997 in terms of databases pretty dramatically especially in the last five years i'm sure part of the reason that you guys are on a relational database has to do with the fact that you started on a relational database but do you think if you could start totally from scratch, would it make more sense to be on like a NoSQL database or stick with a RDBMS like SQL Server? I, th- I think if I were be forced to choose like a, a single database, I would probably still go with a relational database. We've made so many changes recently in terms of uh, this microservices architecture that I, I wouldn't really see a necessarily need to do that. I would try to split up the cluster a bit more into these functional areas than, than when I'm storing data that needs needs a relational database. I'll store it in a relational database, otherwise a, a, a NoSQL database or a graph database or whatever. But I think if I had like a, a 1DB catch-all, I would still go with relational database. Makes a lot of sense. The world is definitely moving towards this concept of microservices. And I don't think I've spoken very much about that on the show I think maybe a little bit when we had the Docker guys on way back in show nine, but also had a conversation with Sam Newman that actually the audio went so bad we couldn't put it together uh, specifically about microservices. I'm sorry about that, Sam, but maybe you could just tell us really quickly for those people who are like microservices, those sound like small services. What's that? <laughs> maybe describe that a bit. It's essentially that it's, it's small services. It's this idea that you spin up a service for a specific need that your, your total ecosystem needs. So in terms of Eve, then we, for example, have a market. Maybe the market could be its own microservice. Maybe it doesn't have to need to connect to the cluster. The cluster would only need to know how to talk to that microservice and that microservice to talk to that cluster. I don't think I would really, really do it justice, but it's really just a, a matter of that, of breaking up your kind of the total application into like multiple smaller services. Yeah, I, the thing that I think that's interesting about that is, you know, I ask you about what is the right database? And the answer may well be, well, certain types of architectures that are proving to be powerful, like these microservices, the answer could be many small ones 
and then it even matters less because when you're, if you're, let's say, just modeling only the economy, which I'm sure is still massive, but just the economy, not every possible thing that could go on in the game, then you might have smaller data based performance needs and so on, right? Yeah, and, and in some cases of data, you actually need the, the everything to be always up to date, but maybe sometimes you just need like eventual consistency on the data. So you, you can you can pick database solutions based on, on the need for that particular feature rather than choosing it for, for everything and hoping it all matches. Having said that, I don't suggest that everybody makes changes to their architecture from like single monolithic application to a, a microservices. It's something you you exchange one problem for a set of other problems, but it can make a lot of sense. And, and one of the things that I love about it is that it allows you to change, you know, decisions that you thought were kind of rooted into that, that you thought you would never ever going to change. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And it's good advice, right? Like design patterns and these larger architectural patterns are super powerful, but they almost always have a context that goes along with them. If you have a million lines of code and this level of huge complexity, you can make that complexity more manageable by breaking it apart. But if you've got like 5,000 lines of code, maybe a microservice just means more servers and things to maintain, right? Right. It's more servers. It's more things to maintain. It's... uh... In theory, that those servers should require less maintenance as well, uh, and they're easier to comprehend. But you also need, like, infrastructure. Maybe you need to have a message queue in there. Maybe you need to add in a bunch of technology that you wouldn't have needed if you had a monolithic application. Yeah, and performance as well, right? Like, if previously the call to get data about, like, the price of an item in your economy was within the same machine or or something to this effect, within the same process even but it still hits like a database, maybe. That's probably a lot faster than actually going across the network, finding another machine, doing a whole HTTP thing, and then asking that same question, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, th- I think, yeah, you just have to, you have to tread very carefully. I think it's easy to get really, really excited about microservices, and, and but you really have to make sure that's the correct solution for you. Yeah, absolutely. I certainly see those tied together with Docker and the whole container space, but again. Absolutely, they've made this thing a lot easier. Nice. So one of the things that uh, you said that you guys had done I thought was pretty interesting is you said you had written your own importer. Is that, like if I say import space some module name, like import OS, you rewrote what that meant? Well, sort of. It's, it's not really maybe such an importer as much as like a bootstrapper. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know actually what, what the state was in Python 1.6, but I'm thinking maybe it didn't actually know how to import packages and, and that whole thunder in it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, so that was pretty interesting. And so what they wanted then, they wanted like a, a shallow namespace for these things. So what they actually did was they wrote something that would just loop over the file. It would, you know, read, execute that file and, and import it into like a namespace that they created. So they basically just injected into CSDOC modules. Interesting. Okay, so what was the benefit there? Do you remember? The One of the benefits was that we'd have auto-reloading of modules when we changed them. And it was actually quite nice to work in Eve at the time. And it still works that way. It's just now it's a Python solution instead of like a home-cooked one. But just changing something in, in code you don't have to restart your server. You don't have to restart your client or anything. You just re-execute whatever you're doing 
you click the button again. Okay, now you got my attention. That's pretty intense, actually. Yeah, and that's and that's still the case today, but now it's like with a Python implementation of it. Did you have to do, I guess you almost have to, either you say you can't use these types of features or you have to deal with things like static variables and static class fields that have been set previously, and then if you reload the module... What did you do there? It wasn't completely foolproof. Like if you, and it still isn't. If you if you've already bound the method to something, it doesn't actually reload that. If you like pass in a method of a of an object into something else, then it's already bounded and, and and it doesn't reload it. But for the most part, for the most code you are changing, it actually just changes it. I've had issues where we, some data was actually stored on on a module level, like a dictionary on a module level, and whenever that got re-imported it would clear that and no sort of thing it's i mean it, it happens you need to restart your server and client and and when you try something out and something funky comes up that's something what you do you just restart everything and try again yeah interesting so you have like two levels you're like let's just try to hot patch it if it doesn't work give it a hard kick right and we've done that in production as well like if there's a problem that we really want to fix and that's what actually one of the drawbacks of having a monolithic application if i have a if i have a problem in the market i need to take everything down to patch it up right we've actually live fixed stuff like that by just going in console and just creating a new method and, and, and attaching that to the class. Okay, that sounds really, really powerful and interesting. Is any of that sort of open source or blogged or written about that people can check out or is it? No, no, no. It, not, none of this is open source. I don't think we've ever blogged about this. I think... Uh, okay, well, it sounds interesting. I know I talked to David Beasley, I think it's show 12, about modules and packages and this whole concept and it was like, oh, we're not really sure that this is going to work if, if it can be done. So to hear that you guys are doing that on this real app, this is very cool. I think people might get kind of caught up in the idea that, well, it, it's not going to work every time, but that's okay when you're doing development. You just want like rapid feedback, really. Yeah, if it works 95% of the time and it saves you a ton, then maybe it's worth it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess coming back to the microservices thing, if you build for something like microservices and you do need to sort of hard restart some piece, it probably has a smaller consequence because you're not restarting the entire thing, right? Yeah, well, but the flip side of that is that you have to write everything now as in nothing is is guaranteed to be up. <laughs> yeah, right. If you do that, then you kind of, you, you're always guaranteed to have something down. And if your whole, if nothing works, when one of the bits is, is wrong, you're going to have constant downtimes. But yeah, there's that trade-off again, right? Yeah, it's a trade-off. Like, it's not a silver bullet. And I think people have been pretty pretty vocal about that like the experts on this have been pretty vocal about that and i think every every paper and every talk i've seen about microservices always starts with that this is not like a silver bullet that will fix all your problems okay cool so one of the things that happens in the game is there seems to be a lot of people that group together to form like a fleet and then sort of in real time with voice communication, they, they, they'll go in and they'll have like these fleet battles, right? How many people like end up in those battles? How many different players? SnapCI is a continuous delivery tool from ThoughtWorks that lets you reliably test and deploy your code through multi-stage pipelines in the cloud without the hassle of managing hardware. Automate and visualize your deployments with ease and make pushing to production an effortless item on your to-do list. 
Snap also supports Docker and in-browser debugging, and they integrate with AWS and Heroku. Thanks SnapCI for sponsoring this episode by trying them with no obligation for 30 days by going to snap.ci slash talkpython. It can, Lars, I think the largest we had was like 4,000 people, I think. Wow. Then it can get pretty laggy, but... (laughs) What's the uh, sort of performance characteristics as you add more people? It can't be linear, like 2,000 people versus 4,000. It's more like combinatorial or something really expensive, right? Like, how's that work? We've done a number of optimizations over the years of that. It actually performs quite well. No, I'm not sure if it's linear, but it's it's not N2 or anything like that. But it, it's also very difficult to predict on that because it matters a lot whether everybody is shooting at a structure maybe that doesn't die for a long time or if people are shooting at each other and people are getting killed and then, for, then removed from that solar system that creates more load. It matters if people are shooting from guns or using missiles. Right, because guns presumably are instantaneous, but missiles sort of cruise through space. Yes. <laughs> right? There's, you got to track them for everyone and see them go by and so on. Yeah, yeah. They don't collide really with anyone except the person that they're meant to collide with. Uh, that's one of the optimizations we did a, a long time ago. There's a lot of factors. It's very hard to say. Like You can, you can look at a, a, a thousand people fleet fight and see no lag, and you can see another one that has a massive amount of lag. It's very hard to measure that. One of the most reliable kind of metric we have is the market hub. We have a single system that, you know how people are, they kind of just all gravitate. And because a lot of goods are there for sale, people think it's worth it for them to put their goods up for sale. So it creates this market hub, which is a solar system called Zeta. And there we have like a constant influx of people. We had like a a maximum of 3,600 people there the other day. That's a lot. Because of some server optimization we had been doing, the CPU actually never went above 50%, I think, on that. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So you said one of the challenges you have with some of the scaling has to do with the the dreaded global interpreter lock or the GIL. What's the story there? We basically can segment our our cluster up into... But, well, it's probably easiest to explain by solar system, right? That's the smallest unit we can run. We can't distribute the load within uh, one solar system to multiple processes, really. Right, okay. That's going to be a bit problematic because that means we can only use really just one core on the machine. So it doesn't really matter. And it's very problematic because the hardware industry is actually moving more towards more core and maybe less clock speed. What we really desire is more clock speed. Yeah, I mean, the clock speeds, I think, are... If they're not slower, they're definitely not any faster than what they were in like 2005, right? They're not getting faster, I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they may even be slower. I know they got higher and they started to melt. They kind of went down. So, all right, that's it. Eight cores, lower lower uh, gigahertz, lower clock speed. Yep. Very interesting. Would Docker type stuff or virtualization sort of let you sort of break that up, at least not dedicate a whole machine to it, but say, okay, well, we're going to isolate you know, Windows, I guess Docker is doing stuff with um, Microsoft these days, but maybe it's, I should say, Windows containers that's coming out soon. Would that be a way to partition this so that you can still get everything you want out of those machines without dealing with the threading? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thought. It, it still requires like a lot of programming work to actually do it, but you'd have to segment what the, the cluster is doing within the solar system 
into like something logical units which you can scale, which doesn't chatter too much between each other. We actually have an idea about that, but yeah, we'll, we'll see if we get there. As it currently stands, we're not really that pressed for performance, or at least it's uh, not as high priority as some other stuff we want to do. Right. When you're doing performance analysis, like you just look at the slowest thing, that's the bottleneck and... Right. If, if the, the stuff behind it is slower, but still fat, you know, slow, but yeah. faster than the bottleneck, then who cares, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And there's something to be gained looking before we start looking into uh, splitting really the, this into multiple processes on, on the same node. But we have like a, a better lead than that. So one thing that you said you're really into is test-driven development, unit testing, and so on. And this code is super old. You must have some interesting challenges writing tests for a code from this long ago, yeah? Yeah, and the importer of bootstrapper, which we appropriately named Nasty at the time, was, of course, like a, a huge, huge burden on us for that because we couldn't really import any of the Eve-specific code without using that Nasty importer. And that Nasty importer really had to troll through everything and, and really just run a full-scale client or a server. Yeah, so you were almost like forced to the point where you're doing integration tests because you had to start the whole thing anyway, right? Exactly, and we, we did manage to create like an interpreter that did that, but we had me and a, another programmer we writing tests, and I think we were up to like 100 tests, and they were taking 45 seconds to run, which was just terrible. Yeah, it's pretty long for unit tests, right? Yeah, yeah. and it's 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 unusable if you want to use it for a, like a quick iteration feedback. Yeah. When, when developing, you really need something in less than a second then, or like that close to it. But there was some initiative to actually get rid of Nasty. They actually managed to do it in like one summer. They managed to do it in, I think, two weeks. Oh, nice. And now, now testing is much easier? Now testing is a lot easier. It's still a lot of coupling and there are other things other than creating our own bootstrapper slash importer that we did like shoving stuff into built-ins and stuff like that that make testing harder but usually always you can you can you can extract the code that you want to test out and you you write tests for them right okay nice to hear that you've got that sort of cracked open so you can test it yeah yeah it's it's been like one stack came in and i once i started being able to write tests like that, it kind of really opened my eyes towards test-driven development and, and automatic testing in general. All right, cool. So let's talk about a little bit about CCP, the company that makes EVE Online. Yeah. You guys are primarily based out of Iceland, right? Right, mostly out of Iceland. We have offices in Newcastle, Shanghai, and Atlanta. But everybody that works on EVE is stationed in Reykjavik. Very cool. I've never been to Iceland. It's definitely one of the places I'd like to visit, though. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Although I lived here most of my life, so... <laughs> it seems very natural to you, right? Very normal. But it seems very normal. <laughs> yeah, with all the winter and the volcanoes, and I think that'd be super cool to go check out. Nice. So you guys use an Agile approach? Is that right? Do you use Scrum, or what's the story there? Yeah, we uh, well, we started with Scrum, and then we kind of... It's morphed into something that's like Scrum, but it's mostly... Scrum is really the basis of it, but I think every every we allow every team to really put their own flavor on it and do kind of whatever works for them. Agile, is, agile practices are really funny because if you if you don't pay attention to them, they will just deteriorate and you'll start getting worse at them. 
So it's something that just kind of requires constant prodding. And of course, it's it's part of the agile to be have retrospective and constantly be trying to improve yourself. Right. I think a lot of people lose sight of that. I mean, on one hand, there's not necessarily a single agile process that is exactly right for everyone, right? I mean, that's a little bit about being flexible and agile and, and so on there. But then if you're going to go and sort of walk it up to the edge of the absolute minimum amount of documentation, rules, structure, that means if you fall apart just a little bit, you're probably falling out of the minimum amount of structure that you need, right? Right. It's a little bit like that. I kind of like uh, starting with Scrum. I think Scrum has, like, if you understand why the rules of Scrum, then you have the power to change them as they make sense to you. But I've seen also seen a lot, a lot of companies or heard from like a lot of my colleagues here around Iceland is that they've implemented Scrum, but they really didn't get what Agile was. So it just all through the motions. So, and, and, and then, hey, this Agile thing sucks. It doesn't work. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, maybe you didn't follow it. Yeah, you guys and, said you, you said you also have a kind of interesting learning and development philosophy. What's the story there? Well, it's not. I mean, we do try to foster kind of the culture of, of having like what we call a community of practice. We, we had a Python community of practice, for example, but we kind of retired that because people weren't really showing up that much. But it's actually very difficult because people are so what call, invested in their job. They're so invested in what they're doing that they, they don't see that they can spare a few an hour here to do stuff like that. What we've been doing is uh, maybe a bit weird, than, which is different than sending people to conferences and getting consultants here, is that we've been kind of running this video series, Uncle Bob. Oh, yeah. Robert Martin's awesome. Yeah. We've been running that, and we've been having like talks after it. That, I think, has been, been very good. I definitely recommend for companies to do that. It's probably one of the cheapest learning and development you can get like uh, in terms of bang for buck. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think one of the things that people, companies, teams, individuals, like on all the levels don't necessarily realize is if you just spend like half an hour a week or half an hour twice a week making sure you polish your skills, you learn something new, after a few years, that really adds up. Absolutely. There have been other initiatives in the past, like we had like on Friday, people had code cutters where they would, meet up and they would get like a, a task and then they would go in groups of twos and they would do something like write these features but don't use classes, stuff like that. But the, So these initiatives, they come and go. I had a kind of a mob programming session which was all about pulling code out and write tests for it. Very interesting. You know, I don't think we've talked about mob programming on this show. I know what it is, uh, but I don't think we've ever mentioned it. Can you just give it like the really quick elevator pitch? Like what is mob programming? Basically what it sounds like, it's like one guy and a keyboard and he takes suggestion. People shout, shout at him. But it, of course, there's one driver and he probably knows a bit where he's going and then he kind of just listens to, okay, so what do you want to do here? Do you want to create a new method here? Or do you want to create a class or whatever? Would you say it's kind of like paired programming, but many people on the pair side yeah and probably a lot lot less efficient but it sparks up a good conversation right it's more it's not necessarily like pair programming the res, the expected output is solid code that you're going to ship yeah where i think mob programming is more about mutual understanding 
Yes. And skill development and so on, right? Yeah, also just getting people to kind of voice their opinions about how code should be because that's we actually just don't do that. We, we write code, we put it up to code review, but without me understanding what your agenda or what your philosophy about code is, then, then chances are we're going to disagree on a lot of like fundamental things. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, it sounds like a, a cool approach you guys have going there. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, do you have any stories about like when there was some giant unexpected rush of, of new traffic or new customers, like maybe like, you know, a new release came out that was really popular or something like that? Well, we had the other day, we had a, a new item come out that was very popular on the market. And, and that meant that everybody flocked to that node, that Jita node, to sell stuff and buy stuff on it. Way more than, than what we'd usually been expecting. <laughs> The thing is, we have a cap on that node. We have like we allow like max two thousand people, I think, on it, because if we get more, it or back we when we used to get more, then we uh, the game would be pretty unplayable for everybody involved. So we thought it would be better to actually limit the amount of people that could be in there at any time, and their experience would at least be a little bit better. Uh, and people can always play and in, in, be in other systems and. But because of a number of uh, performance, uh, like a big performance upgrade we've done, we, we kind of saw that the, the server wasn't actually So we started increasing the cap. We increased it first by 2,500, and, and then we started reaching that. So we increased it. So we're thinking about increasing it to 3,000. So, but instead, the development director said, look, looking at the graph, I think we should just go to 5,000. We can support 5,000 based on these numbers. So that's what we did. And, we got 3,600 people there. The CPU never went above 50%, but the, the memory was actually getting pretty <laughs> to the limit. Wow. And that was actually like a, it's a, it's a weird thing because we've gone from having, being memory restricted on a PC to almost not having to think about it at any point. Eve has this weird thing where we restart the cluster every day at 11 o'clock. So whatever memory we have cast, we just, that gets flushed out. So the the programmers on Eve have never really have never really considered memory so much. So we just cast it and then we never release it because we've never really had to release it. So it's weird that when when you have a lot of people coming in, we just saw the memory increasing and it never went down. Oh wow! Nothing ever released <laughs> that memory. Yeah. What's what I think is interesting about that story is when I think of some system getting hit with lots of traffic and having unexpected growth. I see it as an all or nothing type of thing. Like the website now has a lot of visitors and so it's busy or not. But the way you guys have structured your world, it's like there's a little node over there somewhere where a bunch of people went into that part of the universe and now that part is too busy. That, that's an interesting way to think about scale. Like I suspect most places don't. Yeah, yeah. It's always been a bit. And it's both, it's very funny to look at the kind of the overall CPU utilization of our clusters. And you can see, like, uh, it's using 10% CPU, like on, on average. But still, you know that there are some people, there are some some node there that is at 100%. People are experiencing lag, and you're seeing one, 10%. Yeah, it's almost like you need sort of a mountain range type graph instead of just yeah. a level or something like this. <laughs> Very cool. And and in our old data center, what we used to have is that we we had one node that was we called it the Everest node. It only ran that one Jita solar system, and it was a bit beefier than all the other other nodes, and it was just dedicated to running that 
that particular note. Yeah. In, the, in the new cluster, we I think all the machines are better than that old machine. <laughs> that was the good one, and now it's um, old, old and crusty. Very cool. So I have just a few more questions before we kind of wrap up the show. Yep. I was told on Twitter, thanks. I think it was Kyle that sent a message that said, I should ask you about the big red button. Yeah, that's I. I always get that. I'm a bit of a, I guess, infamous in in the Eve universe. <laughs> so what happened is that I was just happily developing on my local clusters, and I needed to do something. And normally, when I when I shut down the cluster, I just kill the process and start it off again. But there is some logic that happens when you shut down the cluster, some persisting logic that I wanted to test. So I go to the web page of the cluster and I, I shut it down properly. Or properly, it's called an emergency shutdown, and I gave it a yeah. minute timer. So I did that, and then I go back to my client, and I don't see the normal message that I get when I shut down the cluster, like the cluster is about to shut down. So I look at the page again, and I realize I'm on the production cluster, and I'm shutting down the production cluster. <laughs> Oops. So I, and the only way... To, to uh, cancel it is to go to that page again. So I did that and I canceled and I didn't know how long time it passed. I knew I put a one minute timer there, but I just frantically clicked that button. And it turns out I managed to stop the shutdown. It never actually shut down. But everybody that was logged in got that message that the, the <laughs> Eve was shutting down. And people really don't like that. I'm sure they don't. <laughs> they really don't <laughs> like that. So they went on the forums immediately and said, like CCP, what the hell? Why are you shutting down the server? Why do you have a one-minute timer? Because people want to get their, their assets to safety and stuff like that. Right, of uh, course. Yeah, so I did what just came naturally to me. I just I just went into that forum thread and so look, sorry, it is my bad. I thought I was shut down, shutting down my development cluster. And I'm being ridiculed by my coworkers now. Yeah, I'm sure. But it was really, really funny. Because if players are like that, they, uh, they do get very emotional about it, but they also are pretty cool people. And uh, honest mistake like that, they just let it slide. Yeah, and they're pretty technically savvy. They, they are technically they, they savvy. They understand. Some of them probably did this once. And I think yeah. even this even happened like a week after when someone in operations or QA, I can't remember, was going to shut down the, the test server and... And shut down there, but he didn't go to the forums and apologize. <laughs> didn't claim you know public responsibility and say sorry. Yeah. And I think that people like to remember that story as some. This is messed up. <laughs> but I, I'd like to think that I just I did the right thing by apologizing to people and explaining just exactly what wrong what went wrong and why I was being stupid for doing it. But. Yeah, it all happens to us. I, one time I was teaching a training class, and I'll try to not put any details about any place. And I was somewhere in Chicago, let's say, and I was teaching this training class at a financial place. And they, for some reason, didn't have a proper room that they could use for all the, the, the 20 people that were in my class or whatever. So they had given us this weird, like, secondary server room where there's all these servers along the wall, but they weren't, it wasn't the obviously the main data center. It was just like servers that ran internals within the company, you know? Yep. And I had this little squishy ball thing that I would use to like work out your hands or whatever. And I was walking, it slipped out of my hand and it was odd shaped. So it bounced like a crazy ball and it bounced along the student's desks, over along the wall, hit the wall, fell down and hit a power strip that killed an entire wall of servers. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> you hear it go quiet. You're like, oh my, that is bad. So we quick turn them all back on and just go back to the class. 
And about 10 minutes later, some guys rush in like, what happened to the servers? Everyone's like, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I've turned off the servers as well on accident. <laughs> it happened. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, the students had my back. All right. Uh, two quick questions before we go. If you're going to write some Python code, what editor do you use? I use Python now. I've used Sublime and Vim in the past, but I think in terms of like a, a good IDE, I think no, nothing is better than Python. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I love PyCharm. That's, that's what I use as well. Awesome. And then if you're going to go and look at PyPI, all the packages, I think there's like 75,000 of them now. Are there ones that are super useful that you think maybe people don't know about that they should? Well, what to choose from? I, I love the requests package. I think it kind of uh, puts the simplicity in making like HTTP call. Yeah. What's interesting about that is it's like so simple. You can almost not appreciate how cool it is. Exactly. <laughs> I really love that package, mostly because I have probably used the other libraries and they are probably more flexible and stuff like that. But sometimes you just want to make a get request on a, on a resource. And... <laughs> yep, request.get and you're good to go. Awesome. So if people want to get started with EVE Online, how do they do it? Visit eveonline.com. That would be a first step. And I want to highlight a feature of that is that you can, you can download the launcher and it starts downloading the game, but it only downloads the stuff it needs. So it only downloads the code and uh, like a minimum set of resources. So you can be within game in like 10 minutes from there. Oh, yeah. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, I definitely want to start playing it and check it out. It sounds really cool. And after that, it just downloads the resources as it needs it. So it's, uh, if you want to try it out, go to eveonline.com, sign up for a free trial and check it out. It should take you less than 20 minutes on a decent internet connection. Very cool. Kristen, it's been fun to learn about what you guys have going on with Python. A lot of cool stories. Thanks for sharing them. Yep, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Today's guest was Kristen Sigur Bergson, and this episode has been sponsored by Hired and SnapCI. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Hired wants to help you find your next big thing. Visit Hired.com slash TalkPython to me to get five or more offers with salary and equity presented right up front and a special listener signing bonus of $2,000. SnapCI is modern continuous integration and delivery. Build, test, and deploy your code directly from GitHub, all in your browser with debugging, Docker, and parallelism included. Try them for free at snap.ci slash talkpython. Are you or your colleague trying to learn Python? Have you tried boring books and videos that just cover topics point by point? Check out my online course, Python Jumpstart, by building 10 apps at training.talkpython.fm and have a great time learning Python. You can find the links from today's show at talkpython.fm slash episode slash show slash 52. And be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right near the top. You can also find the iTunes and direct RSS feeds in the footer of the website. Our theme music is Developers, Developers, Developers by Corey Smith, who goes by Smix. You can hear the entire song on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. Smix, take us out of here. Stating with my voice, there's no norm that I can fit within. Haven't been sleeping, I've been using lots of rest. I'll pass the mic back to who rocked it best.